You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys today. If you don't know me, I get to serve here as the associate pastor. My name is Brandon Dickerson, and today I want you to open up your Bibles. If you've got one with you, or if you don't, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can pull up the Bible on your phone, and we're going to open up to two places. We're going to start in Proverbs 4.23, and then in a little while, we're going to get to Nehemiah chapter Four. But before we do that, I want to celebrate, we always love to celebrate life change and celebrate those who are making commitments and making decisions. And last weekend, Nina and her son Stephen came and placed their membership here at the church. And then last night, we celebrated the baptism of another student as we continue to see God awaken hearts to the truth of the gospel and what he's done. And I want to encourage you, if you have questions about next steps or about your own faith or what it means to become a member here, then we always want to invite you to fill out that Get Connected card that's inside of your bulletin that you received as you came in. That's the place where you can say, hey, I'm interested in knowing more about this. Or if you've been a part of the church for some time and you're not serving anywhere, then one of the things that we've begun doing is adding a few different service opportunities every single weekend. And so we want you to check the back of that card every week to see if there's an area where you can get plugged in, where you can serve and be a part of what God is doing here. And so take a minute sometime during service, fill that out at communion. You can drop it in the plates or at the end of service, you can drop it with the greeters. Before we open up God's word, let's pray. Father, we give you the glory for all that we see working in our church and our ministry and the lives of our families. We celebrate Bria's baptism last night as she submitted through baptism and gave her life to you. And for Nina and Stephen, who said this is the place that they want to commit and be a part of what you're doing. We praise you for the local church, Lord, that you've given us the place where we can be in communion and in family with others who love you, who are there that that we can support and be supported by and seek to do the work of spreading the gospel. May we continue to do that, Lord, and as we open up your word this morning by your spirit, give us discernment into the things that we'll be talking about, that you would help us to apply it to our lives and to live a life that is worthy of the gospel we have received. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've opened up your Bible to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we're going to look at this verse through the lens of this series that we're in called Simplify. We've been considering that life for us as Christ followers should not be complicated by design. God did not create the life of a Christian to be complicated by Design. In fact, what we find most often is that when we follow God's plans and precepts for our lives as they're outlined in his word, things really do get simpler for us. His purpose in Christ was not to overburden us with commands that we could not follow, but to show us how to have life and how to have it to the full. That's why Jesus came, that we might have life and have it to the full. That means having life in the way that God designed it because he's the one who ultimately knows what is best for us. And so we've been looking at these core areas of life that are made simpler when we align ourselves with how God, through his word, has commanded us to live. 
And today we're going to start in Proverbs by looking at a command that God has given us that is about as basic as you can get. When I say basic, what I mean is foundational for all those who love God and want to live the way he has called us to live. It's not that the command itself, as we're going to see, is necessarily easy, but we find that when we follow this command, when we learn how to apply it to our lives, things get simpler for us. Now, for background, the Old Testament book of Proverbs was mostly written by King Solomon. We know King Solomon to be the wisest man who ever lived back in 1 Kings chapter 3. God said, you ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, I would like discernment, a discerning heart, wisdom in order to lead your people. And so God gives them this wisdom and says that there will never be and there never has been anybody with wisdom like Solomon. That's how we understand him to be the wisest man who ever lived. Now this book, Proverbs, is a byproduct of this God-given supernatural wisdom that Solomon has. It's comprised mostly of short sayings that are applicable to life, wise ways for us to live. And what we find as we read through these sayings is that they were applicable not only in Solomon's time, but he wrote them in such a way that they are very much still applicable for our time today. That is the wisdom of God's word, that though this book was written thousands of years ago, we can take it and we can still apply it to our lives today. We, think, we see things like how we use words, the, the damage that, that gossip can cause in our lives, what it means to listen to sound instruction and to reject foolish advice. We see laziness and the importance of working hard and planning the dangers of wealth and how it should be used if we have it. We see how to appropriately discipline children and to raise them up in the way that they should go so that they might know the Lord. Emotions like anger and bitterness, sadness, happiness, fear, even anxiety, something that is so prevalent in our world today is dealt with through the book of Proverbs. I'd be willing to say that there isn't one issue of our lives that we don't see dealt with through the pages of this book in some way or another. Every issue of life we see covered in this book. But what I want to focus on today is what he says in chapter 4, verse 23, because I believe it to be the summation, the foundation, the most basic element of all that he wrote in these life issues. Here's what he says. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, there are a couple different ways that chapter 4, verse 23 is given in translation. They all mean the same thing, but I want you to see the King James Version also. Because he says, keep your heart, which is guard your heart, with all diligence, that's above all else, for out of it spring the issues of life. Out of our heart spring the issues of life. It's described as the well spring. Now we just said that the sayings given to us through this book address in some way or another every issue of our lives. And so what this verse says is every issue of life without exception can be traced back to the heart. Every issue of our life 
can be traced back to the heart. This is a, a consistent teaching throughout the Bible, one that was affirmed by Jesus himself and later also by the New Testament authors. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in the great Sermon on the Mount discusses many, many things, two of which are sins that would have been considered and are still considered the most egregious sins that you could commit against another person. He looks specifically at murder and he looks specifically at adultery. And what does he say about murder? He says, you've heard it said that if you murder, then you'll be subject to judgment. But I tell you that if you're angry at your brother, then you'll be subject to that same judgment. That he takes murder, this outward act, and he places it as an inward emotion of anger. And then what does he say about adultery? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery but I tell you that if you even lust after someone in your heart, then you have already committed adultery. He takes this, this outward act, and, and, and I think that most of us in this room can probably say that we've never killed somebody, I hope. And many of us can probably say we've never cheated on our spouse. And we say, you know, I've not done these things, and so I'm okay. But what does Jesus do? He draws us back to the heart. And he says, if you've even looked at pornography... If you've even read erotic novels, if you even look too long at a woman's magazine and you're married, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. And that adultery applies not just to your current spouse if you're married, but if you're young and not married, that applies to your future spouse as well. Because you've allowed someone in that shouldn't be there when God has someone for you down the road. James gets to the heart of it this way. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In other words, every full-grown sin, every outward act that is played out in real time has a starting point at desire. And where does desire start? It begins in the heart. And we see the progression of how that leads to sin. And so every sin, every decision, every emotion, every action and interaction with another person has its origins in this one place. Every issue of life flows from the heart. And that's why Solomon uses such strong language when he says, above all else, or with all diligence, or with all vigilance, you guard your heart because everything else comes from it. We get this picture of water flowing out of a wellspring. And what he says is that if you want to see pure water flow, then the simplest thing to do is to protect the wellspring. If you want to see pure water in your life, the simple thing to do is to protect the wellspring. As most of you know, earlier this year, we saw a crew of people out at the front of our property for weeks and weeks and weeks. What were they doing? They were cleaning up diesel that had leaked into the ground and into the groundwater that had been coming from an underground tank right next to us. It was a massive effort to get it all cleaned up because of how much had leaked and how much had spread. They weren't just on our property out front, but they were 
going all the way down Silver Creek in these fan boats to soak up diesel and to clean up the mess that had been made. They were building dams, then they had to reconstruct driveways, and all of this work going on around the clock by coordinated people, skilled people who, who knew how to do it. And when I drove by, I, I would think about the complexity of this work that was going on in just our property and how complicated it must have been for those guys out there and how much simpler it would have been if there had been routine and proper maintenance at the source rather than cleaning it up downstream. Now, too often we spend our lives as Christ followers focusing on cleaning up what's happening downstream. We look at our lives and we see things flowing around us that we don't like and so we begin picking things out of the river. Today I'm going to focus on this particular sin or this particular behavior or this particular attitude and then tomorrow I'll move on to the next one. It'd be the same as opening up the book of Proverbs and finding one of those sayings, one of those principles and saying, you know what, today I'm going to apply this and tomorrow I'll apply this. But like the diesel ditch cleanup effort, the work is complicated, it's tedious, it's inefficient and it's ineffective. And we end up circling back around to the same things that we thought were cleaned up only to find that there's more of the same garbage around us. And we continue circling back there and then we wonder why we can't get it together. Why we aren't really seeing pure water flow when I'm working on this and then I'm working on this and then I'm coming back to this. All the while God has given us a principle that when applied simplifies the whole effort of our Christian walk through routine and proper maintenance at the source. It's a lot easier to clean the diesel out of the water supply if there was never diesel in the water supply to begin with. That's what he's telling us. Protect the wellspring. Guard your heart. Because from it flows every issue of life. Now, when I say that this is a simple concept, what I don't mean is that the application of the command is necessarily simple. Because we will spend our entire lives as Christians seeking to get better at this. And, and we'll do that until Jesus returns or until we go to be with him. That is the process of our Christian growth. I only mean that the Christian life becomes simpler when we can apply it. Because although protecting the wellspring simplifies life, it can be difficult in practice. And that's what I want to talk about today. This can be difficult, especially if you're a new Christian or if you've been a Christian for a while and you've not been making any effort at this. And there are many Christians who live life not ever trying to do this. And then once you start, you realize how difficult it is. It's especially true considering that we live in a world that is saturated with diesel, that is covered in garbage, and all of it is vying for our hearts. All of it wants the attention of my heart. Simply existing in this world is enough to make discernment and wisdom difficult in regards to guarding our hearts. But this isn't a new concept. Jeremiah saw the same thing in his time. Speaking of the Israelites who had greatly complicated their lives by not guarding their own hearts against evil, God says this, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. What is blushing? 
It's a response to embarrassment. It's a response to shame, to things that ought not be said or shown. And so, so I ask the question, not only of you, but of myself, when was the last time you blushed at something you saw happening around you? Or something that you saw in a movie or read in a book or in an article? When was the last time you felt uncomfortable around someone who openly and flippantly used God's name in a derogatory way or said something wildly inappropriate? When was the last time you blushed? When Parker was little, we used to take him to that snot-covered tree at Green Tree Mall, that one that all the kids go out and get their grubby hands all over, and, and we just let him play. Nobody ever uses the hand sanitizer. We just let him play. And they would move that tree. I felt like every time I went to the mall, that tree was in a different place. And one day we had gone there. He was little. We had been playing for, for a while. When I looked up and I saw that they had taken that tree and they had positioned it right outside a massive Victoria's Secret display. And, and, and what, what do they always display? Half-naked women right outside of this tree where children are playing. And I looked at the other parents and none of them seemed to mind this. And then I realized that he and I had been sitting there for probably 15 or 20 minutes before I even realized the implications of it. The point is that we have allowed ourselves to be desensitized to the very things against which we should be guarding our heart. And so the principle itself, while designed to simplify our lives, is difficult because this is the world that we live in. If you take someone from 100 years ago and you place them in our culture today, they will lose their minds because we've become desensitized to all of the things that we see around us. And that's why I want to spend the rest of our time today looking at how we can put this into practice so that we can protect the wellspring. And we're, to do that, we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 4, because I think that we can learn a great deal from Nehemiah about what it means to protect the heart. If you're not familiar with Nehemiah's story, I'll give you the background, the Cliffs Notes. The Old Testament books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther represent the last major historical accounts of the Hebrew people before the silent period between the Old and the New Testaments. Essentially, the last written account that we have before Jesus arrives on the scene some 400 or so years later. By this point in their history, as I said, life had gotten very complicated for them because of their rebellion, because of their sin against God, he had allowed them to be taken captive by a pagan nation. He didn't do that by surprise. He told them it was going to happen if they continued doing what they were doing, and they continued doing what they're doing, and so God allowed them to be taken to the land of the Babylonians. Babylonians end up getting defeated by the Persians, and so many of these Israelites find themselves in Persian country, and one of those is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia at this time, removed from his homeland, removed from Israel. Chapter 1, starting in verse 2, Nehemiah writes this, One of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They told me those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, why was Nehemiah so upset upon hearing that the wall around Jerusalem had been destroyed? Because almost from the moment the Israelites entered into the promised land, Jerusalem had become the capital. It was where God's temple had been built, where God's glory descended and filled the temple. It was where people would point to when they prayed, and it was the closest place on earth that a person could be near God. In essence, Jerusalem was the heart of the Jewish nation. It was the heart of God's chosen people of Nehemiah's homeland. And the wall represented the first and primary means of protection for the heart, to keep the enemies out and to control the flow of what was coming in. And so the destruction of the wall meant that the heart was damaged. It meant that something had gone terribly wrong. And indeed, Jerusalem had been ransacked and the temple had been destroyed. Ezra is all about going back to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah's mourning and his fasting and his praying would go on for four months before God opened a door for him to ask the king if he could go back to Jerusalem and begin the work of rebuilding the wall around the city. By God's providence, the king allows Nehemiah to go. He gives him letters of protection as he's passing through these other countries. He even gives him timber, wood, and supplies to begin rebuilding the wall. And in spite of opposition from those who didn't want to see the city or the wall rebuilt, Nehemiah returns there with a group and they begin the process of reconstruction. And the reason that I want us to look closely at chapter 4, and we're also going to pull in a couple chapters, is because of what we see in Nehemiah's effort to guard the heart of the Jewish nation while they're building the defense around us. In fact, I want us to look at eight things. And I know what you're saying. It's 11 o'clock and you have eight more points to go. <laughs> but trust me when I say my points are not as long as Dave's, and so we're going to push right through them. But we're going to look at eight things that Nehemiah did to protect the heart of God's people. First and foremost, he prayed. Verse 4, when the rivals increased their threats, Nehemiah prays, hear us, our God. Prayer is one of the primary themes throughout the entire book of Nehemiah. Everything that Nehemiah did, does is bathed in prayer. From the moment he is even considering going to the king, even while he's talking to the king, he's praying. And then every step along the way, he is praying to God for the things that they need and for his protection. Prayer represents a dependence on God to give us the things that we need to do the things that he has called us to do. And so simply commanding us to guard our hearts does not mean that we, in and of ourselves, have the ability to do this. In fact, we cannot do that on our own. And so we pray because we are showing that we are dependent upon God to do this. We can't do it on our own because the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah tells us. And it's beyond cure. Without God's help, our hearts will always lead us astray, and so we should pray. The world says, follow your heart. Nehemiah says, pray that God will protect your heart. 
Follow God and let him lead your heart. And so we should earnestly ask God to help us protect the wellspring, to guard against those things that we should not allow in so that we won't have to do the complicated work of cleaning up downstream. Secondly, Nehemiah worked with all his heart. Verse 6, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. It takes the whole of ourselves to protect the whole of ourselves. If Nehemiah had only decided to rebuild three quarters of the wall around the city, then the entire city was vulnerable to attack. He might as well not have even built a wall at all. And there are times when we say that we want to protect our hearts and yet we are unwilling to surrender some aspect of it either because we don't want God to have that part or because we think it's going to be too difficult for him to clean up or, or whatever reason it is, we don't surrender our entire heart and so our entire heart is vulnerable. We have to work at it with all our heart in every issue of our life. Because if we don't, then we're going to find ourselves open to attack in some way. And those things that we think that we're protecting, we find out that we really have no protection at all. Because we've left an open door. We've left a section cleared that the enemy can come in and he can take. And so we work at it with all our hearts. Third, he posted guards. Verse 9 says, But we prayed to our God. And we posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Now the word and is significant in this verse. Because Nehemiah certainly recognized the importance of prayer in this process and that God was going to work through that prayer. But they weren't to wait passively for God's protection. They prayed and they posted guards they depended on God while actively participating in the protection of the city. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Notice two things in, these, in this verse. Dependence on God to build and to watch over, but also an active participation. The laborers are still working, the guards are still watching. You can pray all day long for a house to build, be built in front of you, but until you pick up a hammer, the house will not be built. And so we depend on God while we actively participate in what it is we are doing. And so you are called to stand guard over your heart and depend on God to protect you. We watch. We stand guard. We control the flow. Fourth, he fought for his family. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah knew that there was more at stake than just one life. And how well the men protecting the city did would determine what happened to the wives and the children of the men who were protecting the city. Their very lives were at stake. They could be killed if these men failed at what they were doing. This principle applies to all of us. Dave said at the beginning of the series that everything that we do, without exception, 
impacts other people in some way. It can have a direct impact on our family at home or it can have an indirect impact on things that happen downstream or upstream, whatever it is. Every decision that we make has an impact on the people around us. But to the guys in the room, I want to say this. God has designated you to be the primary defender of the heart of your household. And what you allow into your household, either publicly or in secret, will affect the spiritual life of your family. And so you guard your heart motivated by the desire to see your wives and your children or your future wives and your future children thrive under the simplicity of following God at his word. You work. You fight for your family. Fifth, he sounded the trumpet. Verse 18 and 20 says, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And Nehemiah says, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, you join us there and our God will fight for us. There was always someone at Nehemiah's side, trumpet at the ready, to sound the alarm if danger was approaching. Now you think about that for a moment in our lives as Christ followers who are a part of the body of Christ. Or if you are just a part of this church family. And what does that mean? That means that you have hundreds of people who should be at the ready to join you at your side when you are going to battle. You only need to sound the trumpet. And to reach out and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I've come against this enemy that, that I can't seem to overcome and I need your help because it's too big for me. Come fight with me in this. And if the people around you are your brothers and sisters in Christ, then they will join you. They'll go to you. They'll stand with you and fight for you. Sometimes that means simply being at the other end of a text message to just say, trust in the Lord. You don't need this. God is fighting for you. Keep going. I'm going to check on you every day until this temptation passes. I'm praying for you. I'm fighting for you. I'll, I'll come and be with you so that we can be together. It's one of the greatest benefits of being a part of this body that God has given us brothers and sisters around us who will fight with us and for us and pray for us, who will come when they hear the trumpet call, when danger approaches. Sixth, he was always ready. Verse 23, neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Nehemiah and his people knew that as long as that wall was incomplete, that danger could pop up at any moment and threaten their lives. And so no matter what it was they were doing, whether they were eating or sleeping or spending time with their families or, or going to get water, they had their armor on and their swords at the ready. You and I cannot let down our guard even for a second because it's in that second that Satan will find his foothold and he will attack Paul says that we are not to be unaware of Satan's schemes. And one of Satan's schemes is to wait for that brief moment of vulnerability so that he can slip in and corrupt the wellspring. You and I, we are called to wear the full armor of God. Not just eight hours a day, not just 16 hours a day, 24 hours a day, we wear 
the full armor of God. And it's only when we get to heaven that Jesus himself removes it because it's no longer necessary. We need it today. We need to constantly be ready for attack. Seventh, he turned to God's word. In chapter eight, after the wall was completed, Ezra, who had gone back to rebuild the temple, was called by the people to read aloud the book of the law from daybreak until noon. And all the people listened attentively. In fact, as they listened, they wept because they were reminded of their own disobedience and sin. But the Levites and Nehemiah said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's our strength. You'll never be able to guard your heart unless you turn to God's word, turn to the pages of your Bible and you read it for yourself and you study it on your own and you come here and you listen to it taught and you listen to it preached. It's the only thing in coordination with God's spirit that will give you discernment into what's good for your heart and what isn't. Without it, garbage looks like gold and gold looks like garbage and we need God to tell us the difference. We need him to give us wisdom through his word into what's good and right for us and what is wrong for us. <clears throat> Finally, Nehemiah controlled what entered the heart. At the end of the book, we see the people. It's amazing how quickly this happens with the Israelites. And, and really, it's amazing how quickly it happens with us. But the end of Nehemiah, we see the people immediately begin to fall back into their old ways, even though they knew what was right and what was wrong. And so Nehemiah had to set boundaries, one of which being that at the Sabbath in the evening, he would close the gates of the city and no merchants were allowed to come into the city to buy and to sell because they weren't to work on the Sabbath. In fact, he would make them sleep out there at night and he told them if they came back that he would have them arrested for trying to get into the city at a time when they weren't. See, with all of this being said, you are still responsible for what you allow into the city. You are still responsible for what you pump into the wellspring. If you want to see pure water flow, then you need to be willing to say no to those things that will send garbage downstream and ultimately complicate your life. And if you're practicing these things that Nehemiah practiced, then it becomes, as we grow in our faith, much easier to discern what's good and what's not. Once the wall begins to get built around the city, it becomes easier to protect the city. That was the whole point of building the wall. So there was one point of ingress and egress, and they had the ability to say yes to this and no to this. So the point in our lives is that, yes, this is a difficult command to follow. But once we begin to apply these principles that Nehemiah applied, and we begin to see the wall get built up, and we find that it becomes easier and life becomes simpler. Nehemiah cared deeply about Jerusalem. To him, it was not just the heart of this nation. It was that, but it was more than that. It represented the dwelling place of God himself. It's where the very glory of God had descended and filled the temple. So for him, it wasn't just about protecting the city. It was about protecting the glory of God, protecting the God, God himself and, and his reputation to 
the world. See, the Jews were the royal priesthood, the embodiment of the glory of God to all the other nations around them. They were to demonstrate who God was and to give an accurate picture of their God to the people around them. And so when you set out to guard your heart, when you set out to protect the wellspring, you're not just protecting yourself and making life simpler, as great as that is. It's so much bigger than that. Because every believer, every Christ follower, is indwelt with the very Spirit of God who comes to live in our hearts. And when we have been redeemed, we become the very embodiment of the glory of God to the people around us. We become the reputation of God. The, the reputation of God. We become Christ to the people that we interact with on a daily basis. And so guarding your heart in this way by doing the things that we've talked about means protecting the very glory of God. Not that, not that anything I can do can take away from God's glory. I, I can't do that at all. But what I can do is give a false representation of God to the rest of the world by what I allow into my heart. And so if I'm not applying these things and doing what God has called me to do by protecting the wellspring, I'm not giving the people around me an accurate picture of who God is and what he can do in and through my life. And so our motivation is that we are protecting God's spirit that lives in our hearts. We're guarding God's reputation to the world around us. And so may we protect that at all costs as God works in us and through us to show the world the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is required for us to be saved. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That is what we are proclaiming to the world when we guard our hearts and we seek to show the world who God is. So let's stand up and let's apply that first principle by praying that God would help us with that. Father, you have shown us where every issue of our life springs or that where our hearts are determine the things that we do and the things that we say and the thoughts that we have. And we need your help to protect it. We need your help to know what's good for it and what's not. To be able to stand guard every moment of every day to always be ready. Lord, to just have the courage to, to sound the trumpet and say, I, I need you to join me in this battle. I need you to come to my side and fight with me. Lord, we praise you that you are always with us, that you've given us your spirit to do this, that we lack nothing to follow the precepts and principles that you have laid out that we might have life and have it to the full. And so help us with that today and every day after. And may we seek you and not forget, not forget that you're the one who gives us what we need for it. And if there are those in this room who don't yet know what it means to have your spirit, I pray you would lead them to yourself that you'd awaken their hearts to say yes to the invitation to believe and to have the same spirit that we have. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have questions about what that means to say yes, I'll be up here to answer those.